is it on now? Okay, great. Um, well, I think since Rose isn't going to be here, we should do something fun next week. Don't you think so? <laughs> Food? No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, really enjoyed studying this week. I, I hope that you did too. Uh, I just want to kind of briefly bring us up to date. Last week, uh, we, dis- we discussed a little bit about being in Christ, being in union with him by faith in his bloodshed at the cross for us. And today we're going to take that a little bit further as we look at God's plan um, for us in Christ from the beginning to the end. And we also looked at the Holy Spirit and how he is the evidence that we belong to Christ and how we're to walk in him and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And today we're also going to look at some wonderful ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to us. But first I'd like to kind of throw out a question here. How many of you were either adopted or adopted someone, or know someone who is adopted? Just raise your hand. Okay, so just about everybody in here. Adoption has really touched the lives of all of us. And now I have another question. How many of you look at your birth family and think, I must have been adopted? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. That's really wrong. I probably should repent of that. But um, in other words, you feel like you're so completely different from your birth family that there's just no way that you could be related to them and they might feel the same way about you, too. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, But maybe you also feel so completely different from Jesus. There is just no way that you could be related to him because of the things that you see on the inside of you. We're going to look at adoption this morning, how God brought uh, brought us into his family through adoption, and um, we're going to look at what family resemblance is according to God's word. So I'm going to put up our outline first. Being in God's family, and so our first section is going to be adopted into God's family. And before we get started or we open God's word, I would just like to pray. Father, I'm so grateful to you. I thank you for how you encourage us. I thank you for all your promises in Christ. I think, thank you that we can always depend upon you, Lord, to follow through in our lives. Thank you that everything that, that happens to us is not beyond your perfect plan. Thank you that we can have peace in our lives because of what you tell us in your holy word. Father, I pray this morning, as Rose already prayed, that we would, complete, we would understand as much as we are able to by your Holy Spirit what you have for us, that that I would have clarity, Lord. These are deep truths that we're talking about today, Um, that you would open the minds of these beautiful women that are before us, your wonderful daughters, Lord, and and enable them to love you um, as you have loved us, Lord, that they would see the glory of Christ in your word today. And so I just ask, Lord, I, I, I just ask that you show forth your mercy upon all of us this morning. And um, we are completely dependent upon you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, let's put up the first verse. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I was actually just talking to Claudia (laughs) about this this morning. It's really just phenomenal, these first two verses are, that we could be an adopted daughter, adopted sons and daughter 
of the sovereign God by faith in Jesus Christ and have this living, affectionate relationship with him. Um, having the spirit of God being led by him um, is the testimony that we are sons of God. And we spoke a lot about that last week. And Paul wants to be clear that, when we re what, that what we've received in Jesus Christ is not a disposition of a slave um, where we are under the law and we are fearful. Uh, we have received the spirit of adoption, which is the spirit of sonship. We are now endeared and joined to God as our loving father. We need not be afraid. Remember, we talked last week about no condemnation. There's no condemnation when God is your father. Now, adoption in Roman culture took place more, most often when a wealthy man had no son. And so he would perform the legal act of adopting someone to inherit his fortune and it could, have, it could be anyone. I mean, it could even be a woman if he wanted to. But he might even choose a servant in his household. And what's interesting is I've heard that adoption wasn't very common in the Hebrew culture. But, you know, we do have that passage about Abraham I was thinking about where he was saying to the Lord, who's going to inherit, you know, all I have? Is it going to be Eleazar, my steward, you know, in his household? So there's a picture of that there too. But... Um, after the adoption, the former servant, you know, if he did choose a servant, would take his new father's name. So he had the privilege of calling who he used to call, you know, master, father. So that's the picture here. And we read that because we have received the spirit of adoption, that we, call, we cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba is an affectionate term for God, meaning daddy or papa. And the translators of the first English Bibles had such great reverence for the word of God, and they would not translate this word because it was just so precious. And it is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark 14, 36, just before the cross, when he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I want, you know, not what I will, but what your will. So in full confidence and loving trust for his Father's will, he said, Abba, Father. And we're given that privilege too, which is just amazing. We can speak the same intimate word that Jesus used for his father. All right, let's move on to 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that we are children of God. He gives an internal witness that follows our faith in Jesus Christ, granting us assurance that we belong to the Father. Timothy Keller says that this passage seems to refer to a sense of God's immediate presence and love that sometimes comes to us. But this, this sense is not always present. So our experience is always secondary to what God's word says. And God's word says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So anyone who receives Jesus, God gives the right to become children of God. And that's what we bank on is that verse. So now if we are children, we're heirs, and even heirs with Christ. Remember our identification with him as we talked about in baptism and in resurrection. And here we see a few new ways that we are identified with Christ um, we are heirs with him, we suffer with him, um, and we are glorified with him. Actually, did I miss that? No. Yeah, I must have. 
I didn't get there. Oh, here we go. So, um, oh, all right. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. There I am. So the Holy Spirit testifies with our heart that we're children of God, and I went through all that, right? <laughs> um, okay, where am I at, Rose? Okay, here we go. Now, for children, we're heirs, even heirs with Christ. And we talked about our identification with him. So first, we're going to look at heirs. In other versions, it says we are co-heirs with Christ or joint heirs with Christ. Since we are adopted, we are written into God's will. We will inherit many things. So we're going to inherit eternal, eternal life, the world to come, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God, and we will share in Christ's glory. Now, it hardly seems fair that you and I should be co-heirs with Christ, does it? Um, but, I mean, he's done everything for us. So, but God gives all his beloved adopted children a full place in the family, co-heirs with Jesus. And then the second way that we identify with Christ here is through suffering. This phrase, if we suffer, does not imply um, that suffering is a work that we do in any way, shape, or form. And this is where some in the church have gone astray in the past. Um, so we don't attain glory by suffering for Christ. It, it, really is, it really means here that suffering is an evidence that we belong to Christ, so, or that we are children of God. So just as Jesus suffered, we too will suffer. And this is according to the will and the plan of God. And our verse does not state what type of suffering might come our way only to expect uh, it. One, one scholar quotes, suffering is appointed for us in this life as a great mercy to keep us from loving the world more than we should and to make us rely on God who raises the dead. And Paul, by this point, was very familiar with suffering for Christ. Beaten, stoned, left for dead, in danger, imprisoned, so the third way that we can identify with Christ is in glorification. He was glorified, so shall we be. We're going to share in his glory. And since our text speaks today of future glory with Jesus and being conformed to his image, I want to mention some facts up front first. I mean, we all know Jesus is God, right? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the creator and the sustainer of everything. All things were made by him and all things were made for him, right? We all know that. So when we speak of, oh, and then we are created beings, right? <laughs> That's the difference between us and him. But, but when we speak of glorification, what I want to be clear about is being glorified does not mean that we become divine. And I just want to set that out up front because at some places when we talk about all of our privileges in Christ, um, it may, it, there's such great privileges, you know, so I, I want to be clear there. We do not become the fourth member of the Trinity. We do not become God. So to be glorified is to be perfectly holy, sin-free, both in spirit and in body. And that is promised to us. And the Holy Spirit even now is transforming us towards that goal in our sanctification. And in regards to our bodies, we don't know everything about what they are going to be like um, when they are glorified. The scriptures do tell us that they will be immortal and imperishable, um, bodies that are made for heaven, right? 
The Apostle John tells us that when Jesus appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we must be absolutely holy to behold the, the truly only holy one, right? The, the definition of holiness. And all of this glory at the time of the Lord's return um, is going to be so breathtaking that Paul wants us to know in this passage that everything that we experience here, um, everything we go through, um, as, as hard as the suffering can be, that it really pales in comparison to what we have in store for us. So let's look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So we see the connections between suffering and glory in both of these verses. And Paul is comparing this time, you know, the time that we live with suffering, and the time in the future when Jesus returns with glory that is going to be revealed in us. And I don't know if you picked up on this. Buster mentioned this verse last Sunday, and he used in us. Um, the English Standard Version uses to us. Um, and F.F. Bruce says it is to us, but the idea of in us is also present. So that's probably more than you need to know. The bottom line is it's going to be in us, and it's going to be to us as well. So I'm sure he's right, however he means it. But overall, Paul is saying if you knew the future, if you knew what God had in store for you, you would have a completely different perspective on the suffering that you go through in this life. So suffering, according to this verse and according to verse 17, is to be expected in the lives of believers. And it's not a sign that God has left you um, or necessarily that you've done something wrong, right? Remember Job. It's, it's not necessarily that, that, that sign. Let's look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the glory that is to be revealed uh, in us or to us at the revealing it is going to be at this revealing of the sons of God. And that's a time in the future when Jesus returns. And there's going to be some type of public uh, display of them, almost like, you know, they were on display. And I love how John Gill wrote about this. Let me, let me put that up here. The full manifestation of the sons of God will be in their glorification at Christ's second coming, when they shall be openly taken into God's family and shall be owned by Christ in this relation. Before angels and men, they will appear in themselves otherwise than they do, than, they, than now they do. They will be put into the possession of the inheritance that they are adopted to and will have that honor and dignity which belong to their character actually conferred on them so that they shall appear not only to themselves, but to all the world to be what they are. I thought that was a very good description of what is being spoken of here. So the creation is waiting for that day when the Lord comes and people really know who belong to him. Right now, believers just look, look like everybody else in the world, right? Now, what creation is Paul talking about when he says the creation waits with eager longing? Um, and eager longing here is an outstretched neck, so really looking forward. So creation here is the physical created universe, including earth, animal life, wind and rain, so all of creation, right? Everything except for human beings. And the reason why we know that is because Paul says in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. So you see how he separates 
us from his first description of creation. Um, let's read on before I go further. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the <clears throat> created world and all that's in it was subjected to this futility or vanity by God. And, but as we see, there's an end in view, right? There's going to be a time when it is going to be liberated just as we are going to be liber liberated when Christ returns. God's creation, as we all well know, started off as a masterpiece, right? In it, there was no disease, um, no sickness, no death. And even today, with all of Earth's frailties, um, its order and its beauty are still quite captivating, right? But when sin entered the world through Adam in the Garden of Eden, God decreed that the earth would be under a curse. He said to Adam, you know, cursed is the ground because of you in Genesis 3.17. And this is why we see these earthquakes and volcanoes and famines and droughts and um, animals are, are violent or they're born deformed, right? And crops get ruined by insects or disease. And I mean, after moving to the south, I think mosquitoes are like the crowning. <laughs> Mosquitoes, I can't wait till those are gone. But So the sin of man did not only remain in man. Uh, it was a burden to all of the whole of creation. And I was told before that God couldn't have a perfect creation lording it over a sinful man. So that's, that's part of that. Um, so creation was enslaved to the bondage of corruption. John Calvin said, all created things in themselves blameless, both on earth and in the visible heaven, undergo punishment for our sins, for it has not happened through their own fault that they are liable to corruption. Thus, the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. Okay. So something needs to happen, right? And something will when the sons of God are revealed. In other words, when Jesus returns, creation is going to be renewed. It's going to be completely restored. But for now, Paul says that the creation is groaning, like in childbirth, just like in labor pains. You know, you're waiting for that promised day of delivery when the baby comes. Um, so it's going to be a time of great joy. We are going to see our master and our Lord and um, a wonderful time for all of creation, right? But until that time, the earth will continue in corruption. And I, I was thinking about, I hope, I hope that brings you comfort when you, when you throw that like tin can into the garbage instead of the recycling. I always feel really guilty about that, but it's good to know that creation is going to be restored, right? So, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. So if creation groans, how much more do we groan? Um, waiting for that day, the redemption of our bodies, we are going to be fully conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and on that day, we will be able to see Jesus, you know, in all his magnificence, um, to worship him in all purity. Uh, that day in 2 Corinthians 4 is called the Day of Redemption. And Paul says, on that day, the sufferings that we experience here on earth will seem light and momentary. But we are not without hope. We have the first fruits, as it says here. We have the Holy Spirit. 
Israel had the feast of first fruits. The first fruits was the first part of the harvest. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is our first installment um, of all that is going to come to us. He's our down payment, um, guaranteeing what God has promised God is going to deliver to us. Um, but for now, we groan, right? We groan. We want our day of redemption. We want to see Jesus. We want our bodies to be redeemed. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we want to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So there we have again that the Spirit is the first fruits. The Spirit is the guarantee. The Spirit is the proof that all these things are going to be coming to us. Now, since it says here, let me go back there, um, about adoption again, right? We had heard before that we already had the spirit of adoption. So why is Paul bringing it up as though we're having another day? We're waiting for our adoption if we are already, already have the spirit of adoption. Um, some scholars speak of it in terms of like the legal part happened now, but then there's going to be a ceremonial part. Um, but I, I have an example to give you. When we arrived in Taiwan to adopt our twins, we received the final paperwork. I mean, they were completely ours, right? We, they were legally ours. Um, but we weren't allowed to pick them up for three days because they weren't ready for us. They had some things that they had to take care of, apparently. So they were ours, but we didn't get a chance to see them face to face. But when we did pick them up, it was this glorious day, you know. And so we as believers, we legally belong to God now, right, through the, through the spirit of adoption. And his word is more sure than, you know, the Taiwan paperwork for sure. God's word will stand on that. We, we are his. However, our bodies are still down here, right, on earth. And we're in the process of being sanctified. We're in the process of getting ready for the Lord to come. But when Christ returns, we will be glorified. And we'll get to see him face to face. And that'll be, that'll be our great adoption day, right? So verse 24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this is the hope of our adoption and our redemption. God is watching over our suffering, uh, your suffering, my suffering, all of our groaning, and encouraging us to wait patiently um, for when he returns. And he restores all of creation, both man and earth, and make all, all things new. The hope of glory keeps us going in the midst of everything that is taking place in our world. Um, our world has been so completely marred with sin. But there is this day in store, and it's not a wishful thing. When we talk about hope, it's not a wishful thing. It's a firm hope. It's a guaranteed hope. This is, this is what is going to take place with us so that we can be full of faith and an anticipation of um, and confident that this is coming our way, right? So our principle for this first section is this. God's children wait in patient hope for their day of adoption. So creation groans and we groan. How many of you like pulling weeds? Anybody? No, I didn't see one hand. 
Um, the problem with moving from the other side of the country is that we didn't know what was a weed and what was a bush in our front yard. And we thought that our yard was looking really swell until we received this note, this anonymous note in our mailbox. Your yard is a mess. Weeds needs mulch and sprucing up. If you can't keep up, hire someone. It makes our streets look terrible. <laughs> it's underlined terrible. Your neighbors on Yachtsman. <laughs> and our yard looked nice. I'm telling you, our yard looks nice. But um, <laughs> it was ouch. It was ouch. But anyhow, last Sunday at church, I was talking to my neighbor, Joanna. She lives down the street and um, kind of explaining this to her because I was you know, we came from this rural part in Washington, and we had blackberry bushes and goats and things like that. And we do keep our yard up, but, you know, I, apparently it wasn't, it wasn't nice enough. But Joanna said, your yard is amazing. Your yard is wonderful. And so I guess when her and her husband were on the way home from church, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a sign, and I'm going to put it in their yard, and it's going to say yard of the month <laughs> just to spite them. And I thought, that's what Christian love is, you know, <laughs> that's my sister in Christ. But anyways, weeds really are just a little reminder that things are not what they should be, right, here on this earth. And weeds in our lives as, as well um, remind us that we are not what we should be. Uh, weeds of selfishness, pride, careless words. We seem to pluck them and then they just seem to come back, don't they? Um, and there's weeds of suffering, too, that we experience, and we just groan, right? But Paul tells us to take heart. We are children of God. This world is not all there is for us, and there is a day that is going to exceed all of our expectations when all of the promises of God, the ones that we believe in and stand on by faith, are going to be fulfilled, and we will be changed, and we won't be getting any more of these nice little notes <laughs> from our neighbors. So, so how does the day of redemption bring perspective to you on the specific challenge that you are facing this morning. Um, Paul says our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. Uh, what will you do to encourage someone else uh, about this great hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Okay, moving on to our second part, which is the family resemblance. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Likewise, just as hope sustains us, the Holy Spirit, um, so does God's Spirit. He helps us in our weakness with prayer. And this word weakness is it's also translated infirmities, but it can also mean feebleness of body or mind, malady, moral frailty, disease, and sickness. And for this passage, there's really two lines of reasoning. Uh, the first is that the weakness relates to suffering, right? Because Paul had just talked about suffering, and the original word really emphasizes that. So the Holy Spirit helps us to pray in our suffering because we don't know what to pray for, what God wants for us in our trials. The second line of reasoning is that the weakness itself is that we don't know how to pray or what to pray for. So we don't know the hidden will of God in, in every circumstance or how he's working things out for us, for our good, and we need help, right? 
so either way and every way, we just need help, don't we? But the, the Holy Spirit helps us, and God helps us actually through his Spirit to pray in accordance with his will. And it's believed that this verse is linked up with verse 23. If you remember, we just went through it. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown, right? So this verse, it's thought that it's linked up with that verse. So it's the Holy Spirit who is enabling all these deep groanings within us that come from within us, the ones that are too, too deep for words. But God understands it all, even if we may not. He is the great searcher, um, searcher of all hearts. So we can take heart. And we can have confidence to go to prayer, even if we may or may not be eloquent prayers like Miss Rose is here, or, or even if you know, we're not sure what to pray for, we don't know how to pray for someone, we still need to go to prayer. We can have such confidence that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, right? So now I'm going to attach this to our next verse, and I'm going to do this quite a bit, and I hope it doesn't confuse you, but it, it's such a chain, a beautiful chain going through Romans here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you have heard that verse before? That is uh, just a treasure. So all things work together for good for believers, and that those are those who love God, those who live for God. S some of the how and the why, uh, all things work together, are going to be looked at in verse 29 when we get there. But one way we can see here again is because the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf according to the will of God. And good here, what we see in verse 28, does not mean that everything is going to work out great for us as we know that. Good is what is good according to the eternal plan of God and in regards to our sanctification. So no matter what comes our way, financial strain, trouble, sickness, rebellious children, even the boring and mundane things that happen, we are under the care of our Abba Father. And nothing sneaks by him. Jesus said, even the hairs on our head are numbered, right? So Timothy Keller also gave a comforting thought in regards to this passage. He says, all things, even means, are backsliding and our sin. God can even use our sins and our failures to humble us and to teach us a right view of ourselves. Uh, so all things, hard things, and even the good things, the joys and the treasures of a relationship, all these things work together for good for those who love God, for us who have faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can have confidence in prayer. God will answer for our good. Now, you notice that this verse uh, is for those who are called according to his purpose, right? Called means the effectual calling of God. In other words, it's a calling. It's not a general call, the general call of the gospel that goes out. It's a calling that comes with power for faith to believe in Jesus. And it comes from the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1, where he greeted the Roman believers and he says, you are called, remember that, called to belong to Jesus. And then he said he was called to be an apostle, right? So it's equivalent, as Hodge says, to the word chosen, right? Because cho he was chosen to be an a, a, a apostle, and the believers were chosen to belong to Jesus. So it's actually a quite wonderful word in itself. You might just skip right over it, but it, it has a lot of rich meaning in it. And the word purpose here means intention or determination. So
So we are chosen according to God's determination. Uh, we add nothing to it. This is God's doing. And that is going to be clearer here as we go through verses 29 and 30. And we look at the word predestined. And I'm going to leave that verse 28 up as well. And I, I want you to look at these underlines. This is a very meaty section. I don't know if you, how much time you've got a chance to spend in it. But, and so there's our verse. And we know all things work together for good, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul expands on what the purpose or the determination of God is, that those he foreknew would be conformed uh, to the image of his son Jesus, and conform means fashion like unto um, so we're to be made like Jesus in all holiness and righteousness, moral purity, character, with the end result of, if you'll look at the bottom of verse 30, being glorified. That is our end result of being conformed to the image of Christ. Remember um, our description of glorification that we just went through. So you might wonder why the glorification, right? Uh, Paul says in verse 29 here, in order that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that this family of God would grow. God desires many holy children bearing the image of his son, Jesus. And it's not for our glory. It's to display and magnify Jesus for all of eternity. Jesus is the master design for all of the children of God all of those in God's family. He's the firstborn, he's the head and the chief who will be worshiped throughout eternity. And Jesus himself said, go and make disciples of all nations. God is bringing many sons and daughters to faith and into his family through Jesus Christ. So let's look at the process that God uses for glorification. We see this, the, the terms foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And some have noted that these are all past tense verbs that Paul uses. So what does that say to us? That all these things are as good as accomplished for us as believers. God finishes what he starts. Our future is so certain that Paul can speak of it in these past tense verbs. But the understanding of these terms are so important because they really involve the course for our entire lives. We can never say, what is God's ultimate will and purpose for me? Because this is it. This is his ultimate will and purpose for us. Um, but let's take apart the words um, that God uses for the process. So foreknew, foreknowledge. This means to know beforehand or foresee, but it is not simply the fact that God knows everything before it happens, right? Because we all know that. But especially since this word is joined uh, with the word predestined, that's, that's another reason why we know that. To know in the Bible is equivalent to, to love. When the scriptures speak of God knowing someone, it means that he sets his love upon them in a personal way. Uh, therefore, Timothy Keller says, foreknew means foreloved, loved beforehand. And John Stott says that foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. 
Therefore, God loved us beforehand, before the creation of the world, as we're going to see in another passage that we're going to put up here in a minute. Predestined to determine a destination beforehand. God had an end goal in mind when he set his love upon us. He, des he decided our destiny, if you may. He determined it in advance. Both of these first two terms, as F.F. F. Bruce says, belong to God's eternal counsel, right? Called, we spoke of that effectual calling accompanied with power to believe. When we were called, the calling came with an enabling and a persuasion to have faith in Jesus uh, and into this relationship with God. Justified, and this is a legal term, and I'm just going to read this straight, straightforward. The judicial act of God where he, whereby he justly declares and treats as righteous the one who believes in Jesus Christ. Remember, we said our first week that we, we were here that God um, declares us righteous through faith in Jesus, right? Glorified, again, ultimate perfection of believers, morally perfect, flawless in body and spirit, complete confirmation to Jesus Christ as glorified as a creature or a creation of God can be. Keller says it's to have all sin eradicated and to be made perfect in body and soul. Now, if you look at those five terms, um, is something missing here? Do you notice that something might be missing? It's sanctification, right? F.F. F. Bruce states it, maybe it's because in regards to sanctification and glorification, it's only a matter of degree, right? So it's not one of a kind. It's not one of kind. It's only by a matter of degree. Sanctification is progressive conformity to the mind or image of Christ while we are here on earth. And as, as, as you've probably heard it said, you know, when our body dies, we just step right into glory, right? Because we already belong to the Lord um, and, and we are made perfect then. A NAV press study I read said, sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification completed. Let's look at um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 in regards to this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So God set his love upon us from all eternity. He set a course for our lives that we would come to know him through faith in Jesus, that he would declare us righteous by faith, and then he would take us into glory. He has loved us from beginning to end. And we're going to come back and discuss more of this in the following weeks as we look at election. Because the question of man's responsibility uh, or choice um, and God's sovereignty over our lives, that question always seems to come up when we go through these passages. So I think if you have some questions, they may be answered next week for you um, with the scriptures that we're going to go through that, that lie ahead of us. The main point I believe Paul's trying to communicate in these last few verses is that when he spoke about all things working together for good for us as believers, he was showing us that God has a plan for us, and he's going to be faithful to see us all the way through if we are in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can be patient in our afflictions. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So he has started our adoption plan a long time ago, and he is going to bring you home, all right? Let's look at Ephesians 1, 4 uh, through 5 before we go any further. This first section is our longest, I promise. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So it's according to his pleasure and will. And that word pleasure is delight. It delighted God uh, to adopt you. So our principle for this section is this. God works from beginning to end to conform his children to Jesus. God works from beginning to end to conform his children to Jesus. <clears throat> I usually don't talk that much about myself. Well, I hope I don't, but I feel like I am a lot because we did adopt, so we know a little bit about it, but... My, my daughter, Chloe, who, you know, again, was adopted, she basically likes whatever I like, and she really studies me to, to see what I like. And, you know, so if, if I'm eating some ice cream, she goes, I like ice cream, we're twins. She always says that to me, we're twins. If we're both wearing purses, we're twins. Even today, she said, Mom, we're wearing black and cream, we're twins. So, and I, I say, poor thing. <laughs> she wants to be like me, obviously. But, um, but we also have some of the same dislikes. You know, we don't like loud music, and we don't like crowds, and... Um, and we don't, don't like a lot of noise in the house, but we love to read and we love to do very quiet things at home. So, and it's, it's, it's really neat having a girl because as she gets older, you know, I just see the ways that, um, that she learns from me, you know, and really wants to be like me. Um, so we certainly are twins and I wanted to just put up a real quick picture. Don't we look alike? I just wanted to see, don't we look alike? Anyways, <laughs> God is looking for family resemblance in us. Um, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. This calls for us, like Chloe studied me, to study our subject, to behold Jesus, right? To experience his love for us. And thereby, through, through that, we are going to be transformed into his image. And I'm going to put that verse back, oops, verse back up again. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. We must behold him if we have any hope of being transformed into his image. Okay. So let's go to our last section here, the unbreakable family bond. And I'm going to have to move quickly. So we see Paul really tying this up at the end section here with a really beautiful, beautiful bow. Um, and he helps, he asks five questions in this last section, which helps to answer our biggest question as believers, which is, will God ever leave me, right? That, that is a question I think has come across our mind at one point. At least it has come across mine early on in my faith. And the answer is no. We are secure in Jesus Christ. The plan that God has is bigger than us. It's bigger than you or I, and it's being worked out by God. So now we can rest in God and have the freedom to obey him as a loving father without this slavish fear that he's going to kick us out of the house, right? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If God, from the very beginning, set his love upon you, right? Remember that foreknowledge that was, and he, he's planned to see you all the way 
through to glorification, what in the world could stop him? He is, after all, God, and he's promised it. And he gave up the most costly thing for us, which was his son, Jesus. And the scripture tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And now that we're his adopted children, won't he do even more for us? Um, us who are considered righteous by faith now. Um, so he's going to give us everything. God is for us. Um, sometimes it's good just to say that God is for us and to remember that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Satan's our great accuser, and even our hearts can sometimes condemn us, but God has legally justified us um, through Jesus Christ. And Jesus has already died and has been raised to new life, and he is interceding for us right now. And as we saw, the Holy Spirit is helping us too. So God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit are all for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is from Psalm 44.22, or Psalm 44.22, Paul's quoting. Paul had experienced, as we said before, the worst of things, probably far worse than any of us in here um, have ever experienced for the sake of Christ. But no matter what we face, it doesn't mean we're separated from God's love. Um, as we said, Scripture told us there would be suffering so that when it comes, we're to expect it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul says that in everything we conquer, and that, that word is actually super conquerors, but it's not through our own conquering power. It's through him who loved us. He's the reason that we can conquer. Um, all glory to him. And if God is for us, can anything take us down? Paul says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He's loved us from all eternity. So do we really understand what we've been given in Christ Jesus? Um, we, we might lack faith, and we might grieve the Holy Spirit because we spurn God's love, but nothing will ever separate us from his love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the last, the last principle is this. God's love in Jesus Christ makes his children secure. God's love in Jesus Christ makes his children secure. And my last point here is that, um, you know, people who adopt are counseled about something that is called attachment disorder. There's this wide range of spectrum of ways that it can present itself. But one of them is that the child can't seem to receive the love of their new adopted parent. They just have a hard time trusting them based on maybe experiences that they've had. So they withdraw or they rebel um, or they just act out. 
And adoptive parents are taught to treat it as a brain injury, which needs to be just nurtured. And then, you know, with time and love and stability, the child will eventually learn that, that he or she has nothing to fear from their new parents. Uh, so my, my final questions here are just, how easy is it for you to trust in, in your Heavenly Father that he could love you like this, like everything that we've talked about today? You know, maybe, maybe others in your life haven't loved you, and so you fear you might have this attachment disorder where you're not able to receive the love of God. But how does the continued hearing and believing of these words that we studied today enable you to trust God? Um, and how will they help you even defeat sin in your life? You know, all the rebellion and all the acting out. Um, remember, faith in God's word is what defeats the flesh. So what will you do intentionally this week to remind yourself of God's eternal love for you in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you in our hearts and acknowledge that you loved us. And we are so amazed at your love. And it, it causes us to just swell up with love for you in return. And I pray, Father, that we won't forget your words, that we will grow in Jesus even this week as we meditate on all these truths and, and what you've done for us. And we're so grateful, Lord, that, that it doesn't depend upon us because we would surely fail you, Lord. But to Jesus be all the glory and to you be the glory, Lord, for all your, all your perfect plan that you set in motion in eternity. And so I thank you for this, this time together, and I, I thank you for um, the peace that you give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.